Well, hopefully some of you remember the sermon that I preached on January 2nd from the book of Haggai, where Haggai the prophet exhorted those who had returned to Jerusalem from exile to get back to the project of rebuilding the temple. For a number of years, I've wanted to preach a long sermon series on the exile and the restoration. But alas, it's not going to be possible. As I, you know, plan out the remainder of the time I have here, I have to pick and choose. But I will take advantage of opportunities at times to uh, focus in on things from this era. There's so much richness here. And so I will do that this morning as well as January 2nd. I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 126 this morning, which was written in the same context as the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And I'll remind you of that context in a moment. But let's first read Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. Verses of this psalm express a, uh, a great amount of elation. So let's talk about the historical context. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, that is the nations were saying about us, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. So the elation that they, he's referring to here, that they experienced, is an understandable elation when you understand what's going on in the historical context. The Jews, as you know, had drunk fully of God's righteous anger on account of their idolatry. Jerusalem had been destroyed and the people of Judah had been taken into exile by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. They had been oppressed and abused by foreign powers now for several generations. They were despised and humiliated now under Persian rule who had taken over the kingdom of Babylon. It had been a long time since the Jews had received any good news. But then a king named Cyrus came to power in Persia. And out of the blue, it seems, the Lord stirred up the heart of King Cyrus 
to suddenly send any Jews who wanted to go back to their homeland to go back at his expense and with his security force accompanying them in order to rebuild the temple which had been destroyed by the Babylonians 70 years earlier. And again, he was going to pay for the whole thing. You can read about this in the first chapter of Ezra. This is what the, the psalmist referred to, is referring to when he says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. We could just imagine the celebration of that news that they could go back home. But their joy didn't last very long. Things didn't turn out the way they'd expected. In that 70 year period where they had abandoned their land and had gone into exile at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, people had moved into their territory. And those people weren't too happy to have the Jews return and try to reclaim their land. They opposed the Jews moving in and especially their attempt to rebuild the temple. So the Jews who had returned got discouraged and stopped the project. This is also when Zechariah the prophet encountered, sorry, when Zechariah the prophet encouraged the people by telling them that the Lord would be a wall of fire surrounding their project to protect them from their enemies in Zechariah 2.5. He also told them that their project would be done not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord in Zechariah 4, verse 6. And in Psalm 126, we can see the psalmist writing out of the same disappointment. When right after writing about how elated they were when the Lord restored their fortunes, he prays in verse 4, four Lord, restore our fortunes again. The opposition confronting the Jews had changed his tune. They're not filled with laughter anymore. Their tongues are no longer filled with shouts of joy. In fact, in verse 5 and 6, it's clear that they're not weeping. But think about this. The psalmist is sobered by the frustration and the difficulty of this setback. But he doesn't despair. The psalmist turns to God. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. But even that is not the first thing he does. Before he gets to that, he begins by reflecting on ways God had restored their fortunes and answered prayers in the past. And he sums this up in verse 3 with this expression of thanks. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. And notice that he doesn't say, we were glad, referring to the glee that they felt when this announcement came and when they first traveled back. But we are glad. We are glad to be able to serve and worship a God who's done such great things for us in the past. 
in spite of the setbacks and the obstacles, before he gives attention to all that in his request for God to restore their fortunes, he first rejoices in God's restoration of the fortunes of his people in bringing them back to their homeland in the first place. His present distress hasn't drowned out his gratitude for how God has redeemed his people in the past. And this is such a great model for prayer. It's really the same model as we find in, first, in Philippians 4.6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In fact, Psalm 126 is like Philippians 4.6 in the form of a psalm. We face many obstacles too and frequent opposition. It often gets discouraging. And just like the psalmist, when we pray for God's help, we should always do so in light of the way that God has already rescued us in the past. Like the Jews, he has given us a new home in Christ. The land he promised so long ago. He is building his new temple. And he's called us to work on it as his helpers. When we get discouraged, we don't don't need to despair or panic. God has already proven himself to us. We are redeemed. We belong to him. He still rules over our lives, working all things for our good. Gratitude and prayer isn't merely a matter of being polite to God. It's not just a matter of giving God what he's due. It's a matter of recognizing who we're addressing, who we're coming to, and what amazing things he's already done for us. True prayer is not problem-centered, it's God-centered. When we pray, we should be more gripped by the God we're addressing than the, the problems we're addressing to him. Now let's talk about the petition itself in verse 4. Here's a six-verse psalm, and there's only one petition. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Restore our fortunes. Get us back on track, Lord. Put your blessing on us like before. You brought us here. Now help us to get through this. But he prays, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. What is this streams in the Negev thing? Well, there are desert areas on earth which look dead. But occasionally they do get rain. And when the rain comes... The area is suddenly transformed from barren wasteland into a green garden. The animals, the plants, and the people around are desperate for water. And when the rains come and the streams flow again, it makes all of them so happy. This happens in the south of Israel in what we call the Negev. What in the Bible here is called the Negev? Well, the psalmist feels 
like his situation looks dry and barren. But he knows what can happen when God allows the rain to come. And so he cries out to the Lord, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams of the Negev. Again, this is such a helpful example of prayer for us. It's a big prayer to a big God. He doesn't ignore the problem by any means. But instead of focusing on the enormity of the problem, he focuses on the enormity of God. The psalmist prays in the confidence that God has the power to turn this desert into a lush garden. Because he remembers how God has done it before. And then, there's one more important component to this prayer. As the next, next couple of verses show, the psalmist knows that no matter what happens in the now, even if his present desert doesn't get turned into a garden, in the end, God will bring a spectacular harvest which will produce shrieks of elation and joy. And God put this here for us to teach us to pray and how to pray. So let's look now at the last two verses where he talks about this final exuberance. Verse 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Here the psalmist reflects upon the nature of life with God by using the image of sowing and reaping. Now in a farm, they plow and sow in the off-season long before it's time to reap and harvest. If a farmer then fails to do his work in the preparation season, he'll pay for it in the time of reaping. As we read in Proverbs 20 verse 4, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn, autumn meaning after the harvest, right after the harvest. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn, he will seek at harvest and have nothing. He'll look out in his fields and there won't be anything there for him. Now, we can all understand the sluggard, if we're honest. Work is hard. Trying to yoke some big ox and move him around through the field to plow up your ground and it's not like it makes a big difference whether you do it this afternoon or tomorrow. And what good does it actually do? Nobody gives any awards for plowed fields. There's no gold medal for plowed fields. You get yourself, not only that, but you get yourself all dirty and smelly you come in at the end of the day, your wife doesn't run into your arms and say, thank you so much, dear, for plowing the fields. No, she says, don't you dare come into the house like that. Get out. And you stink. Go 
don't get clean before you come in here. It's so much easier to put it off. After all, there are plenty of legitimate things you can do which don't involve getting filthy or exhausted. But the problem with living for today is that today ends and tomorrow comes. And eventually harvest time comes. And the one who never did the prep work is left high and dry. It's hard being a farmer. The work is tedious and frustrating. They experience crises and heartbreaks just like everyone else. Weeping is a part of life. But there's still things that need to be done, aren't there? The cows need to be milked and the fence needs to be mended and the fields need to be sown. It's like parenting. One of the hardest things about being a parent is comforting and reassuring your children after some crisis has happened, even though your own heart is breaking. You can't take a day off to grieve because your little ones need to be fed and changed and, and made to feel secure. One of the hardest things to do as a spouse is when you feel like you've been mistreated somehow and everything in you wants to retaliate but you know that that's just going to make a bigger mess and that you need to respond in love even though there are tears in your eyes and even though you're hurt it may be hard sometimes extremely so but the psalmist has something to tell us about those who do what they need to do even when their hearts are breaking. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And the one who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You know that expression shouts of joy occurs three times in this psalm. Well, I just read two of them right, right then. The other one's in verse 2 talking about the elation that they felt when they got delivered in the first place from Persia. This is actually one word in Hebrew, not shouts of joy, three words. It's a very interesting word. It's translated in various ways, shouts of joy, shouts of gladness, Sometimes it's just cry, his, you know, you hear someone's cry. Sometimes it's exultation, sometimes it's singing. It refers to a sound that is elicited by something extraordinary happening, like a, a shriek. Think of the sound, the, the, the images that come to my mind when I think of this word are two. One is We've just, we've just uh, witnessed it, if you watch any of the Olympics, the, the shriek of someone who just realizes they, got the gold, they won the gold medal. And often they just scream in joy. And then the other is sometimes you see a video of a, a woman reacting when the, the man that she loves gets on his knee and pops the question. And she shrieks in joy. 
This is spontaneous and intense. A shout of joy, a shriek of joy. So Romans 8, 23 tells us that we groan as we go through this life sowing with tears. Psalm 126 tells us that on that great day, when our mourning is turned to dancing, our groaning will be turned to joyful shrieking. The pain of life, of course, tempts us to give up, to panic, to get bitter or angry. But we must remember where this is headed. We must remember the shrieks of joy which are coming. Imagine this scene. There's a sower with a bag of seed walking through the field, sowing. Maybe he's just had a very painful conversation with his spouse. Maybe he's just received some heartbreaking news about a loved one. Maybe he's just gotten yelled at by a neighbor. Maybe he's been up all night taking care of a little one. But he's in pain. Well, what is the image? What is the sower doing? What's, he, what's the picture look like? Is he screaming and kicking the ground and ripping the bag open in anger? Is he sitting down, sobbing while the field goes unsown? Is he in a fit of worry and fear and panic, immobilized? Or is the sower continuing to sow even while tears streak down his cheeks. Now, I don't mean that there's never a time to be overcome by emotion. I don't mean there's not a time to go have a good cry. I've done it many times myself. Pain is real and pain hurts. But the fact is, even when we're in pain, God is still on his throne. And his call on our lives hasn't been canceled our lives are lived in planting season. There are jobs to do, responsibilities to tend to, prayers to be prayed, duties to fulfill, people to love, hurting people who need to be encouraged. Paul tells us in Galatians, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of well-doing. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Does this mean we are stoic and just shove our pain inside and go on like everything's okay? That's not what the psalm says. The sower in Psalm 126 is weeping. Tears are flowing. But the sower knows that there are things bigger than his pain. The psalmist knows that God 
is bigger than his pain. The psalmist knows that the calling, God's calling to sow is bigger than his pain. And the psalmist knows that the divine purpose of his pain is bigger than his pain. And there's one more thing which the sower knows that is bigger than his pain. The sower knows that his future elation, his future exhilaration is bigger than his pain. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For these light momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because the sower knows these four things are bigger than his pain, he keeps sowing and sowing and sowing, even while he's in pain. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. The weeping sower is a great picture for us. It's a great picture of parenting, serving even when exhausted, caring for others even when it seems like no one's caring for you, loving even though you don't get loved in return. It's a great picture of being married, fighting for the relationship even when you feel attacked, listening to someone who's arrogance is dripping all over the place remembering your spouse's pain even when you're in pain it's also a great picture of worshiping singing and praying before God and listening to his word even when your heart's breaking but let's talk for a moment before we end about the coming exhilaration at harvest time. We, I asked you a little while ago to imagine the sower in the field who's in pain. Well now envision another day. It's now harvest time. The same sower who sowed in tears is now reaping a rich abundant harvest. A harvest resulting from all the sowing done as he wept. Visualize your future joy as you've sown with tears. Imagine Jesus looking deep into your eyes with total love, with total acceptance, telling you how precious you are to him, how enthusiastically he approves of you, how unconditionally he loves you. This is a glimpse of what awaits those who willingly sow in tears today. It's beyond anything we could have ever imagined or dreamed. Something which elicits shrieks of joy from the depths of our being. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Our tears are not wasted. 
God takes note of our tears. He writes them on his scroll and collects them in his bottle. And one day, there will be a great reversal of fortune. The last will be first. The low will be raised up. Those who mourn will be comforted. Our mourning will be turned to dancing. And the joy of that day will make the weeping of today look light and momentary. You in our midst who have birthed babies know what this is all about. As Jesus said, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. John 16, 21 and 22. It's one thing to endure the difficulties and the hardships because you see no way out. It's quite another to do it because we know that our Father has brought it into our lives for good and that it will yield in the end a bountiful harvest. And you know what the proof is? The proof is that Jesus brought victory and glory and joy through the cross. Of course, we can have a taste of this joy even now, even in the midst of our tears, knowing that Jesus is with us, that he cares about us, that he sympathizes with us, that he loves us, that he helps us. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. 2 Corinthians 1.5 Not only will those who suffer faith in faith find great joy, but during the process of their suffering, they have the presence and comfort of Jesus through his spirit. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise you for how you sweeten the burdens and the distresses of this life with your precious promises and with your presence. And Lord, we pray that you would help us as we face obstacles and disappointments and heartaches to be mindful of your faithfulness, of your power, and of your promises to temper our pain and to empower our faithfulness to continue sowing even in tears. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, for his willingness to bear the pain of the cross, that he did not shrink back, 
but continued on in faithful obedience. And now he enjoys the glory and the joy of having accomplished our salvation. Help us, Lord, as we wait for that wonderful day of his return. We pray in his precious name. Amen.